I'm your host, William Leightonen, and welcome to the Talent Equals podcast. So I've been quiet over the last few weeks. I apologize for the disruption in broadcasting. Uh, but unfortunately, my wife experienced a freak accident, which resulted in a head injury. And so well, our life got turned upside down. And as I'm sure you'll all understand out there, that uh, the podcast had to take a back seat while I tended to her recovery and the needs of my family. But as with all adversity in life, there are great positives to be found once the emotional turmoil passes. And the good news is that my wife is recovering. She's doing well, fighting hard. And I've had a huge privilege to help her through this difficult time and also be a stay-at-home dad, which has been incredible. But let's take one observation that I've made during my family crisis and see how I can connect it to today's episode. It's a theme of scarcity of time. And we have a scarcity of time in this life. My experience has brought that home to me. We simply just don't have as much time as we think. And so the work that we do should be worthy and ambitious. And while the definition of those goals, worthy and ambitious, are very subjective, they are still a highly effective way of checking in on your life and the satisfaction that you're achieving in your work. So in today's episode, I'm interviewing founders of a highly ambitious insurtech called Superseed. I'm joined by the founders, Ben Rose and Jared Lee. Ben and Jared are reimagining and creating a brand new fully digital reinsurance ecosystem. That is a ambitious and certainly worthy task for these two gentlemen. They're doing this by re-engineering an entire digital marketplace where all of the players within the reinsurance journey can work on a brand new stage, which they will incentivize through removing mundane tasks, enhancing data collection, and enhancing the digital relationships that those players experience. There is a reason the ecosystem is the holy grail of many startup companies, because he who controls the data controls the universe. And while the logic of an ecosystem as a business is pretty clear and, and tested, doing it within a 100-year-old industry, which still makes lots of profit, and you're needing to incentivize players to take part, is devilishly difficult. It's definitely ambitious and a worthy challenge for these highly talented founders. So with this in mind, I really wanted to dive into how Ben and Jared approached this challenge and how they've created the culture and hiring that supports this ambitious objective. Ben and Jared are very thoughtful and intelligent founders, and I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I did. And so without further ado, I give you Ben Rose and Jared Lee of Superseed. Ben, Jared, welcome to Talent Equals. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Delighted to be here. 
<laughs> Fantastic. How are you doing? I am very well. Thank you very much. It's um, been looking forward to our conversation. And I thought that's actually what I'd dive straight into because you guys are leading a company called Supersede. And Supersede means to replace something. So what are you trying to replace? That's it. Not only to replace, but to, to go one better, I think. In many ways. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's another uh, secret reinsurance meaning to the name as well, which is uh, so that the last part spelled C-E-D-E is, is the verb to cede or to give away. Uh, that's traditionally used in the reinsurance markets to mean uh, effectively a, a cedent or an insurance company that's, that's buying their reinsurance would be ceding their risk. So we're making that process uh, super as well by replacing the current process, um, which I'd be happy to tell you a bit more about. I, currently, it's, uh, how should we put this, across the entire spectrum of reinsurance at the moment, uh, everything is, is kind of done offline. I, so from the insurance companies, you have to make their pitch to the, the brokers and the reinsurers. They're doing that in a big zip file filled with spreadsheets. And then the brokers then have to go and coordinate a, a vast army of, of reinsurance underwriters uh, who are all going to take you know a few percentage points each uh, of each layer that goes out. And they're doing that all with emails and spreadsheet attachments and uh, embedded additional credentials for mysterious FTP sites located somewhere out in the distance. And then finally as well, you have all of these reinsurance underwriters hungry for deals uh, who only really have access to deal flow from the people they already know that they've met in person by chance at a conference or down the pub or wherever else they've managed to find uh, room to wine and dine. Um, and what we're trying to go beyond, I guess, is that total offlineness and bring together an online reinsurance ecosystem or as we like to call it, reinsurance that connects. And make it super. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the important part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jared, you, you're joining us today from the Lloyds of London building, in fact, right? So Indeed. Are, are you sort of like the, the Trojan horse then, sort of <laughs> going in there ready to, to disrupt this, this ancient marketplace? Or you know, how, how does that fit with you know, what, what's already there? Well, I think, you know, and to your earlier question of like, what are we, what are, what are we replacing? I think a lot of us, of our approach is focused on enhancing the way it exists currently works. And, you know, you look at Lloyd's being um, an icon of sort of the traditional distribution model where everyone centralizes in a singular place and they can efficiently connect with, you know, as an underwriter, you're efficiently seeing all the risks that come through the floor. And as a broker, you walk into one location and see all the capacity you could possibly need for your risk. And that was very much reflective of the industry at its inception. And as we, you know, as we come in here, it's, we look at what is the future of this industry look like? And there's lots of remnants and elements of, of what Lloyd's has done and what this model has produced that we're trying to compound. And as we digitize that and take that into a, an ecosystem online, reflecting a lot of those same behaviors, finding the right people, knowing which underwriter to talk to or which risk you want to see first and optimizing it for the modern era. But it's, it's fun to be here as we sort of work to, and, and Lloyd's is making a huge commitment to this of you know, innovating in the future at Lloyd's initiatives and blueprint one and two, you know, around modernizing what this market is and, and where does it go next? So we're, we're thrilled to be a part of the lab and, and to be part of this journey that, that takes Lloyd's into its, it's the next sort of step in their process. Mm. 
Because, I mean, I sort of hear in that, I mean, Lloyd's is renowned for being a relationship-driven marketplace where, yeah, there's there's so much human interaction that's going on in this, you know, incredible building and this incredible space and where, you know, rigid Lloyd's came from. It was this Lloyd's of London sort of coffee house place, right? And so how... How do you maintain that human relationship in the supersede kind of ecosystem? If you're trying to create that by taking some of that online, how do you look to maintain those human elements? Or are they important to you? Tell me about that. I think they're critical. And um, what's really amusing about this is, is a lot of supersede or, or risk book, as it was initially known, uh, actually came from demand from uh, the more, and I don't, I don't want to put a label on this because we, we had this demand across the board, but in particular, a high demand from sort of millennial population who, for them, relationships in general, even outside of work, were changing uh, in the way that you built them, in the way that you maintained them. Uh, we worked particularly with the, the under 35s reinsurance group here in London and the under 40s reinsurance group in the US, where they were saying, when I need to communicate with people, I use a WhatsApp group or you know a Telegram group or, or back in the day we had Facebook, etc., and Instagram and and all these other solutions that enabled us to not not just enjoyably but incredibly efficiently communicate and update and keep in touch with a much larger number of people than historically, where you might have been more dependent on. I'm friends with the the five neighbours that I can walk to their houses or, you know, the few that I happen to have met because we went to school together. Uh, whereas nowadays you see people quite successfully sustaining very meaningful relationships and friendships with people who are all over the world. And uh, a, a, an example that Jared's often used in the past, you know, he's got friends who are having babies uh, like back home in the States and and he's able to see their, their, their children grow up, you know, from his, his life here in London. Uh, in an incredibly efficient way that we we can't really replicate currently in our working lives. We, we heard mm. many people say to us at the moment, they step into the reinsurance world, and it is like getting into a time machine where you know the only means of communicating or finding people uh, are at best old-fashioned. Mm. So we're, we're there to try and inject that same familiarity of modern digital relationships uh, into the workspace as well. Mm. It's, it's such an important part of our product. We've actually embedded it as sort of the third pillar of what we do is every user of our platform builds their own profile and articulates their appetite in line of business and geography to, to help better connect those counterparts from around the world. When I first joined the industry um, on the broking side with Aon, you know, we'd get a new deal and we wanted to find an underwriter for a certain class of business. It was reliant on did the more senior members of the team have that person written down or stored somewhere. There was no efficient mechanism by which you knew who wanted to write what. And in much the same way of like an analog address book or contact book works, you know, if if you've decided you want to write different types of business or grow into a new geography, no one in your worldwide market knows that yet. And there's no efficient mechanism to get everyone updated as to you want to do something new or ex- expand into a new area. And as we lean into digitizing this experience, elevating what people can know about each other as it pertains to you know, deals and working together, we very much embedded that personal human component into the core of what we do. Mm. So many people listening to this who 
are maybe involved in insurance, maybe the more traditional components of like primaries, like direct-to-customer insurance, may not be aware of the sort of the nuances of the reinsurance world because it is it is a bit of a different beast in many ways. So when I hear you talking about what do people not really understand then about the way historically in reinsurance has been done and, and this process takes place that might help us understand a little bit about why this is such an interesting thing to do. Yeah, it's it's a truly fascinating process because you have uh, the, the who guards the guardians kind of question and how does that work? And unless you've, you've been there and experienced it, it's, it's an imaginary place for a lot of people. So happy to give a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain as to how this, this typically works. Um, it all starts with an insurance company who is looking to, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's for their solvency to ensure that their results uh, avoid volatility, to protect them from large catastrophes or, or major events that could impact their earnings, all sorts of reasons. An insurance company wants to get reinsurance coverage. Uh, and in order to do so, they have to make a pitch to the market effectively to say, this is why you should reinsure us of all the other insurance companies out there. Um, and so begins a process for them of effectively explaining what on earth it is that they do as an insurance company uh, and why they do it well and where they do it and how they do it um, with, a, with a means of being able to show those reinsurance companies that if they form a relationship with the insurer, uh, it's going to be positive for them both in the long run. Um, in the in the earliest sort of versions of this, it was very much based on uh, trust and relationships, as we said. So there would be quite a, a limited amount of data available to interrogate as a reinsurer was assessing, do I want to get into bed with this insurance company and form a long-term relationship? It would be very much people uh, that drove the trust there as to who would reinsure who. But over time, as we've had much more data become available, uh, you've seen quite a standard set of requirements and exhibits that need to be produced to share with the reinsurers to convince them to reinsure them. Um, and what this looks like at scale, especially for the for the bigger the bigger insurance companies, is that they have to produce uh, this huge data pack uh, nowadays, which covers and, and what I'm going to say here covers each individual entity and oftentimes each individual product that each individual entity in each country <laughs> is writing. So they have to do this several, several times. You know, some of these insurers are buying. 30, 40 different reinsurance policies and each policy will, will need a different pack put together for each section of business that it's writing. And inside this data pack, what they have to put together is uh, a sort of historical and forward-looking view of a number of things. So the premiums that they have been writing and expect to continue writing, the rate changes that they expect to see over time, what are they going to be able to charge for the, the policies that they've been writing in that space? Uh, a general listing and border of all the policies that they've been writing and how they differ in different respects, such as the limits and the deductibles that are involved in those policies. So you see these 2D tables and profiles being built out. And then there's a huge focus on the claims side, of course, as well. So loss runs showing the claims uh, that are coming in new, the claims that are developing, and triangles showing how those are performing over time. And nobody seems to know that that process exists, which is why we're so excited to be to be helping out there in particular with our SuperSeed analytics tool, because at the moment, preparing all of that data in a reliable way is, is really, really hard. Uh, it takes some seeded reteams up to sort of three months to get 
one pack ready uh, for their big treaties where they've got you know multi-class, multi-section coverages that they have to somehow explain by reaching out to about 10 different actuaries and 20 different underwriters and reserving teams and MI teams to try and get a roughly reliable uh, Excel spreadsheet set together. And then that's, that's where their process should end. They've managed to get all their data together internally uh, and they pass it off to the broker. And the broker at this point hopes to come in and say, great, we can take a look at your data. And based on your data, we're going to tell you what the best coverage you can buy is, who the best people to buy it from mm-hmm. will be, and how you structure a deal around you know, your profile that's going to work for you and give you the best protection. But what's actually happening at the moment instead is that instead of spending uh, 90% of its time on that problem as a broker, the broker's stuck spending 90% of their time sorting out that data again. Because the broker, when they start reviewing all of these exhibits that have come together, they spot little mistakes, they spot inconsistencies based on what was shared last year, and they have to go back to the scene. And they go back to the insurance company, who in turn has to go back to those 20 underwriters, those 10 actuaries, the reserving teams, to try and find out why something doesn't line up. And it just creates this tremendous back and forth, which is exacerbated again as you'd expect when it goes to the reinsurers who in turn do their own analysis and spot even more things and have more questions and so there's this real huge uh, amount of work that's created just by trying to get the data that's needed for the reinsurers to decide uh, who they're going to reinsure um, and it that process there has been untouched i think since the data started to be added into the sort of who do we trust question and we haven't yet, as an industry, reached a point where that could be systematized in some way so that there was an easy way for insurers to present that data to reinsurers in a consistent way and to present it to their brokers so that their brokers spend their time actually adding value and not just cleaning data. Um, and that's where SuperSeed Analytics is coming in at the moment to offer that uh, validation, cleansing and automation solution that means you can basically allocate to all the different individuals, those underwriters, those actuaries, a very convenient online portal to drop in their data. They get instant feedback uh, on what they're providing to compare it against last year to also check that there aren't any obvious errors and mistakes and things in their made up currency symbols or missing columns or the fact that you've only submitted 300 rows data when last year you submitted 3,000. All sorts of things we see all the time. Um, And so that means that that process that normally takes three months can be done in three days. Uh, which is a huge jump forwards. It means suddenly you can actually start to do something with that data and start to make far better decisions about your reinsurance buying. This is this is my point. I, I hear all of that. And thank you for the long explanation. And it's a complicated process. And many people won't know that this is taking place, but it's working at the moment. So why does it matter? What And what does it do by doing all the things we've just talked about, automating it, creating the, the, the data and making it more transmissible? How does that help? your average person on the street who may not even know, know about all this, why does it matter? Yeah, we, this is a, a fundamental importance of where reinsurance sits and how it, like what's it, what it's intended to support. And um, when you look at the inefficiencies throughout the entire insurance ecosystem, constraints around how the insurance companies can access capital and get protection for their additional risks, um, trickles down through the process in much the same way if you're a young driver and you your premium is incredibly expensive your inability the the insurance company's inability to get efficient support and protection 
like their results in them having to hold additional capital on their balance sheet and, and a variety of other challenges that they face, which then trickle down to the end consumer. So improving the ability for the insurance companies to get additional protection, additional coverage, allows the insurance companies themselves to deliver more innovation, more efficient pricing, better solutions to their end clients. One of the things that we think is really, really interesting is the innovation that's happening on the direct-to-consumer side, the introduction of new products and helping to close coverage gaps and these types of things. And the ability for the insurance companies to actually do that is reliant in a lot of ways of them getting really efficient access to reinsurance support to do so in much the same way that, you know, if we free up a bit of additional cash on our side because of how we buy our own homeowner's insurance, it doesn't mean, it means you you don't need to have, you know, several hundred thousand in cash to buy yourself a new house. You can, you know, you have your insurance in place and you can deploy your, your assets and things in other more efficient ways. Insurance operates in a very similar way with their relationship to the reinsurance market. So one of the things that we're most excited about is as we improve the ability for the insurance companies to efficiently structure and, and source reinsurance capacity, that that innovation and that value will trickle down through greater innovation to the end consumer and, and ultimately probably better pricing and things as well. And so we've got this kind of efficiency process. We've got this then trickle down to the consumer, which hopefully then starts to breed innovation around products and allows insurers to do more of the work focusing on the coverage gaps and price dislocation, big topic. And we've had other guests on the show from um, Kettle and others and, and Descartes talking about kind of climate change and wildfire. So is it is it the data here that really, because you talked about there for a minute, Benny, so that this is, is it the data that enables that? And how do you use that data? Yeah, I think, I think the data is key in, in a number of ways. I, I, firstly, because at the moment, as we said, the efficiency challenge around getting to the data is so large that, you know, Jared is sat at Lloyd's at the moment, they're running at a 38% expense ratio at the moment. So the consumer's suffering, you know, the fact that almost, you know, four tenths or, or two fifths of the the pile of money available to pay their claims has already gone by the time it's ready to, you know, be used, uh, just spent on expenses. So firstly, we've absolutely got to take out that process and and so much of that is due to just data uh, needing to get sorted but then once you have the data uh, once you actually have the visibility around how portfolios are performing and the ability to consider how they are together forming a diversified portfolio for an insurance company in the first instance but for a reinsurance company afterwards it enables us to move closer towards I, I guess this is sort of a nirvana in the reinsurance world where you, you have a, a much more diversified portfolio because you're actually understanding what's in your portfolio. So you understand your cost of capital, you understand the ability to play off different portfolios against each other more when you understand what data, what is actually inside those portfolios. Whereas at the moment, there's you know, a huge bulk of the capital that's held by reinsurance companies. Uh, is just held for uncertainty because they don't know what they've actually insured uh, and insured again, if that makes sense. They just have this huge unknown. So there's a, a mm. big uh, pile of cash that just sits there doing nothing that instead could be deployed much more efficiently uh, if they were able to know what was actually going through their portfolios. And likewise for the insurers as well. Uh, you'd be you'd be surprised uh, in general how 
difficult it is for an insurance company, especially these big firms that have grown through mergers and acquisitions and are using different systems in every country to actually get that portfolio view, that, that reinsurer's perspective on what they're doing overall and what their sort of overall portfolio looks like um, and escalating that view to the point where you have a consistent view of here's all of the business that's coming in and here's all the business that we're taking out. And this is the balance that we're left with as a business. Being able to make effective decisions on that enables you to be braver and it enables you to actually think about which portfolios you want to bring into the business and which portfolios you want to address with some actual knowledge. Whereas at the moment, it's sort of every individual underwriting team's uh, business case to make to management that what they're doing is a good job. But it's very hard for you know the senior folks in the business to actually tell how the business is performing across the board until until many years later, uh, when when it's a bit too late. I mean, I, I think we could probably talk for a long time about the opportunity for innovation and um, transformation and the the sort of the idiosyncratic nature of reinsurance. Um, and maybe we can come back to that and themes like blockchain and and um, parametrics and and how that then connects to these huge events that we've been seeing in the world, like with the pandemic and climate change and such. But I'll just maybe just we'll just park that for a moment because one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you both is because of the idea of the ecosystem, and I think it's really exciting that you're trying to do something so big within a, a 500 billion market. You're looking to create a brand new ecosystem, and I think many insurers, many actually, frankly, any many new startups are all very interested in this idea of an ecosystem and how they can create it and capture value. And But it's a big, big challenge. It's hard to do. Many have come, many have failed. And I mean, I'm hats off to you in terms of like, taking on this challenge. So I suppose I'd just like to stop there for a moment and just ask you some of your, your lessons that you've learned so far. You know, you come from insurance, both of you, and now you're taking on this challenge around an ecosystem. So yeah, what what have you learned so far in in the journey from Riskbook to Supersede in creating an ecosystem and how you make it work? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And um, when we when we think thought about the original sort of step, I think we always had a shared bigger vision of you know from the various first conversations Ben and I had around what this might become. We always sort of carried it through and you know then this could happen that could unlock this and then these things could be possible and we always we always recognized the various stages that we thought things would have to go through you can't get to this end point without these intermediate steps and we've been working backwards to identify what the most impactful intermediate steps are i think the industry collectively when you talk about the future of the space there's this shared agreement of what nirvana looks like i think the really hard thing is you know how do you how do you get to that end end state? And what does that look like for us? Some of the biggest learnings that we've had, and we've been very fortunate really early on, um, is is getting feedback from our users and talking to the industry around what they want and why. We we've seen a number of startups who come from the outside or and they sort of proceed to present their position to the market and they sort of try to force the market to adopt their view of the future. And we've been very engaged early on with um, our earliest ideas and getting feedback from practitioners and users. Ben mentioned the networking under 35s and under 40s, like reinsurance groups, 
what do those individuals think about the future or the future that they want to experience and where do they see it evolving? Because it doesn't make sense for us to, to go away and build some sort of monolithic beast and then sort of force everyone to try to adopt it and then try to drag everyone through it. The reason we're getting so much pull for our solution is because we're listening so closely to what people are talking about and the pain points that they have. Right? And it's some of these things, they don't jump out at you. The challenges around data preparation that Ben took us through isn't, isn't sort of presented as part of the, the Blueprint 2 initiative of placement data preparation is too burdensome. But that emerged from us talking to users and them saying, you know, we see this evolution of moving towards electronic transactions, but we have this huge pain point of zip files full of spreadsheets that we can't get out of. And it was digging into that and uncovering what's happening there that resulted in us building solutions to tackle that. And we're so engaged with our early users and our community around what are the things that will help them grow as individuals, grow as businesses. And we're building solutions that, that help them meet those needs. The other thing that we think about from an ecosystem play is understanding that a truly successful ecosystem supports a huge diversity of of players and all who have their own specific needs and there's certain things that no one's doing well that we want to definitely build and and deliver to the market but there's other things that you know there's amazing solutions that are already out there you know you look at the cap modeling solutions that AIR and RMS have and what Oasis is doing around innovating in that space um, back office solutions like Trace Isis um, open twin system um, there's these systems that are really robust that solve the needs of various players. And, you know, and as we look at a diversifying group of, of individuals, you know, the needs of a, a Nafila will look very, very different than the needs of an Axe XL or an Amlin. And, and so what we want to do is not sort of force them to all adopt a singular model, but bring certain elements of that in through a standardized flow, the trade itself, the underlying data then allowing them to connect in things that will help their business be more efficient, a capital model so, you know, tool or, or similar. And, and so as we build this ecosystem, it's recognizing the need for interconnectivity, the ability for data to come in and out of our system mm. so that those individuals are getting the, the information that drives their decision-making in a really efficient way, but recognizing that the tools they use to do that might differ radically across parties and us not, sort of tried, us not trying to impose the the way to do it to them rather present elements that should be improved upon remove you know moving us away from emails and spreadsheets into digitizing that more generally but then passing that along in in a variety of ways to people who want to ingest it in a variety of ways and analyze it in in their own view of the world i think it was charlie munger who said if people can work based on incentives then they should work in no other way I may have bastardized that a little bit, but I think the, the essence is this idea that incentives are so important. And I hear that in a new ecosystem, or in actually, let's, let's take the nature model in any ecosystem, there's a set of incentives for organisms and participants to act. And that can be usually on the free exchange of energy, the protection of energy, the acquisition of energy. And they have a, 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 a range of strategies that they employ to, to go about growing, recreating, and propagating. So 
I, I wonder how important incentives are to you guys when you're trying to change behavior, maybe trying to bring people into the system and how, you've, how you think about that. Yeah, it's, it's a really exciting question. Uh, and one we think about all the time because I think uh, we'd, we'd seen from our analysis of a, a lot of other solutions and attempts to build ecosystems in the past that um, certain things were not possible. Uh, for example, this valiant but unfortunately kind of doomed uh, belief that there was a greater good uh, for insurance industry participants to create some magical new technology future together. Um, that that doesn't have the incentives that are required. People are not willing, um, when it gets down to the actual practitioners who have to change their way of working uh, and to the firms that have to you know manage their own uh, competitive stance, etc. This idea that we should all adopt technology for the greater good of the industry, um, that hasn't really worked uh, any of the times that it's been tried. You have to find, in, in some ways, and, and again, you know, this is our invisible hand or whatever you want to call it, the, you have to find the selfish parts that also work towards the greater good. So how do we help the individual practitioners, the individual users to make their own lives better so that if you're the person who's responsible for actually bringing the data into the ecosystem on the ground, you're not doing it because it will make your boss or your boss's boss or someone you've never met's life easier or some startup who's got an exciting visions vision come true because you probably don't care. Um, you've got to do it because you get something back and it's going to genuinely make your working life better. It's going to give you new insights that you didn't think you could get before. Mm. And that has been critical to us sort of from the beginning to work out uh, through these interviews that we keep mentioning and through these through our own experiences, through the people in the team that we've brought on. I, that has been the, the most critical learning for us, I think, there that we've got to actually respond to not just the firm's incentives, but the, the individual people who work there's incentives to give them a real reason to adopt uh, our solution. I think you saw a really nice comparable example with OpenTable, for example, we, we, we quite like as an example, uh, where when they were kickstarting their business for and, booking. And forget, are people listening, OpenTable is the where you can book restaurants, right? If I'm getting this right. Back when we actually used to book restaurants, if I remember that now. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, so OpenTable, we know as consumers in that angle of, uh, well, well, we did know, as you say, uh, that angle of being able to book restaurants um, online, it was great. And, you know, it meant that OpenTable could join up all of the people who wanted to book restaurants with all the restaurants who were looking. But until there were any people booking restaurants on there, there was no reason for restaurants to sign up because the restaurants would say to OpenTable, yeah, we'll we'll sign up and put our restaurant on there once you've got loads of people waiting to book restaurants. And the people who wanted to book restaurants were saying, yeah, we'll sign up and book restaurants once you've got all of the restaurants signed up. And so you end up with this classic chicken and egg problem around a marketplace, where at some point you've got to have a, a selfish, self-contained interest that means that, I'm using selfish in the most positive way here, sorry, it sounds like a bad word, but sometimes we've got to No, no, absolutely. The selfish gene by Richard Dawkins, read that if you want to know about its sufficiency, yeah, so, yeah. But, but effectively, yeah, so OpenTable had to find a way 
uh, to convince one of these groups that this is where they wanted to be. They wanted to join the ecosystem, even if none of those diners uh, would ever sign up to the app. You had to get people to join the ecosystem without any dependency on anybody else. Um, and so what they did was they introduced a table management software for restaurants. So the restaurants themselves, uh, who currently had this big organization issue of, you know, if somebody calls and books a table and they've got some two-seater tables, some four-seater tables, some six-seater tables, they might have built something themselves using, I don't know, Microsoft Visio. I don't even know if that's the right one. Or they've got like a PDF diagram and they've numbered all the tables. They didn't have anything clever here to make that allocation of tables smart. Uh, whereas OpenTable said, look, we'll help you with your table allocation and managing you know, how many bookings you can take and which tables people can go to, regardless of whether those bookings are coming via OpenTable. Uh, we'll give you that software. And the restaurants were delighted and they all signed up. And suddenly OpenTable had this critical mass of uh, restaurants that meant they could go to the diners and say, oh, no, we've got some pretty good restaurants on here. You should, you should get involved. And I think we have to create the same effect to enable ecosystems in insurance more generally, but in the reinsurance space particularly, where we're bringing on the cedents, the brokers, the reinsurers, because they get valued themselves without any dependency on anybody else being there. Um, you see this most strongly, I think, with our analytics solution, uh, where a cedent is able to actually organize for the first time all of their outwards portfolio data and understand much more uh, deeply their inwards data in the process by going through that exercise of bringing it together and seeing it all in one place. And they, they want to do that regardless of whether their broker then uses supersede placements or their underwriter finds them via the supersede network. And then similarly, we see the same sort of thing happening now with, with the brokers as well. We've just introduced, uh, so on supersede placements, we have a, a Lloyd's recognized e-placement platform built just for reinsurance globally. Um, on that system as well, we've introduced a feature called Ghostwriter, uh, which is a great name, I, I personally feel. Uh, but <laughs> it, it basically solves for this issue that if, if you've only got, um, well, let's say you've got, you know, 10 underwriters on a on a deal that you're trying to place and nine of them are on supersede and, and underwriter number 10 is like, oh, you know, no, we, we don't like new technology. We like doing things by email or we like to send our slip in the post or our authorization via Telegram or who knows? And I mean, old-fashioned Telegram, not the not the WhatsApp alternative. Um, if you're stuck in in that kind of scenario, uh, we needed to give the brokers a way where this was actually just going to be a much easier way to track uh, your deals and all the underwriters on them, regardless of whether those underwriters are also signed up. Uh, and so, Ghostwriter lets you manage and add evidence to all of these mm. authorizations and quotes that you're receiving uh, that you currently don't have any way of tracking what you have instead is a broker running around with excel trackers and emails that they're trying to file somewhere that are their evidence that somebody actually has authorized on a deal uh, which makes things very complicated uh, otherwise so again making a system that that individual placing broker gets value from even if none of their friends turn up uh, it has to it has to be the way you do things initially so that eventually you can go to everybody else and say We've got a critical mass now, uh, so now it's valuable for you too. Mm. So you're incentivizing them with making their life easier. Um, it's like the the little pollen hit that, that the bee gets for landing in the in the flower, and 
and and generating the the pollination process it's i can so hear in in that that you're trying to sort of focus on those what are the things that those actors need and you mentioned it earlier with you about these interviews. I, I kind of want to go back to the feedback sessions. I don't know why I'm sort of interested in those search, but I'd like to to know: is there something you're you're doing in there? Is that something that you have worked hard on in terms of the feedback sessions? Are you trying to standardize that process? Yeah, how do you get sort of information from your your pollinators? <laughs> if I torture that metaphor, yeah, I think for us, it's it starts with. And I think this is where a lot of startups struggle is your default position as a startup is to come in and when you engage with someone from the market or a potential user is to start by telling them how awesome your thing is and selling them right out of the gates of this is what we do and we'll help you do this. And this is how amazing this thing will be to your life, et cetera. And, and we've taken almost the exact opposite approach. We've, we've gone in in pure discovery mode. And started conversation around like when you're going through this super painful time. So in reinsurance, it's called renewal season. It's there's only a, a handful of times throughout the year that all reinsurance gets placed. So it's exceptionally busy for everybody. And we go in with questions like during this time when you're in the office from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. You know, doing it. You know, for weeks and weeks on end. What are the most painful parts? And then they, you know, start telling, oh, I have to do this. Like, well, why do you do it that way? Oh, because I have to go back and do this. And you, and you just keep discovering, right? And it's, we're not there to say, oh, so supersede, voila, magic pill. Um, what, what we're instead doing is discovering and learning and capturing a, a whole suite of these experiences. Because you don't, you don't solve these pain points for users with solutions directly, right? You're, they don't, they don't, they're not coming to you to buy it a tool, they're coming to solve a pain point or they're coming to, to, to solve a need or fix, fix a need that they have. And only through this sort of just, just digging and digging and digging, do you start to uncover the root causes of these issues. And going back to the, the analytics solution that we have, you know, it started from the reinsurers saying, you know, we have this problem, we get just zip files full of spreadsheets and you know, every broker's spreadsheets look very different and there's, they're never organized in the same way. There's loads of errors in those. And it was only through really digging with brokers and, and carriers, um, insurers, that we started to understand why that was the case, why this is so hard and so painful to put together and really leaning into, you know, so once you've done this, then you have all these issues like, okay, that makes sense. I see why that's hard. And then what are you trying to do next? Well, then we have to compare it to last year's and and we, oh, we had a really big issue last year because, you know, Jenny, who created last year's pack, moved on to another role at a different company. So we actually don't know exactly how she prepared a couple of these exhibits. So we're sort of really stuck trying to align with what we've done and cross-checking what we think she may have done and sense-checking where those numbers are. And it's, there's just, it's so, so hard to do that efficiently. Mm-hmm. And it was us like really digging there. It's like, oh, so there's this real pain of not knowing exactly how it came together. And, and all of these kind of, you know, this discovery process that we take on with clients results in how we build our solutions and what pain points we're trying to tackle. And again, the reason why it's resonating so much with the industry, because now when we go into client calls now, and again, very discovery focused early on, you know, what are the pain points that you have? Where does, you know, what does your process currently look like? 
it feels and sounds very, very familiar because we've done so much of this discovery. So when we start talking about what we're doing and, and where we think it might be able to help, it's, it's based on the fact that we've understood that conversation a huge amount of times previously. Um, so it's, it's these kind of things. And I think it's, it's very counterintuitive for startups. A lot of times I think you're so excited to talk about the thing you're going to use to, to change the world. And, but most people, they don't, you know, they're not looking for, for you to change the world. They're looking for their own pain to be solved. And again, mm. going back to Ben's selfish need, like as a, as a junior broker, as a young, even a senior broker, like my ambition to change the industry is relatively low, but my ambition to not be in the office till 10 PM at night, you know, in advance of my anniversary or a child's birthday or like that's super high. Mm. If you can find, if you can find or deliver me a way that I can be home in time for dinner with my family, I am very, very interested in that. And I'm, I'm a bit less interested in the transforming the industry and like the grand, the greater good of, of everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm less thinking about that. There's a, I had a guest, previous guest is Thomas Weddle Weddlesborg. He wrote a book called What's Your Problem? And I mean, the, the opening title of the book is uh, To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Change the Problems You Solve. And I think so often we, we go into problem solving mode straight away into action without actually thinking, are we trying to solve the issue? And he is a great example of a, of a, lift of a elevator and the elevator problem and you tell a tell a owner of a building that the uh the elevators the aggressors the residents are saying that the elevator is too slow so they think what do we do we speed it up right everybody goes so let's speed that elevator up let's make it faster well as many you know experienced um building managers will tell you all you need to do is put mirrors up to distract the people from the weight because it's not actually the speed of the elevator that's the problem it's the experience of the weight that's the problem and what is that that going on and then so we can sort of like flip that by listening by thinking by actually trying to change the conversation a little bit and and focus on the right problem but i was also wondering you know listening to that example you've given me is that and this will be a link into what i want to go on to talk about the journey of doing investment and maybe a bit of a meta idea of incentives for yourselves as well but have you found that to be an easier process of getting this information as a startup and not being a big industry incumbent, like the B3I thing being, you know, Swiss Re, being Munich, being Score? Is it just been easier because you guys are just a small new kids on the block, small startup? I think so. And I think a, a really important piece to emphasize here is that we were from day one incredibly neutrally minded and and fiercely guarded our independence as we went through this process so uh, you mentioned funding I think we had we had this really uh, entertaining time where just as InsureTech was coming into vogue and all of the different insurers were setting up their own venture funds and things uh, to invest in startups we were like yeah we've seen this happen before we've seen so many startups sunk by the fact that they took an investment from X big insurer or X big breaker and now nobody wants to talk to them and nobody wants to work with them because they're effectively then going to be by osmosis talking to their competition. Um, so we, we guarded that very carefully so that we could keep our independence. And that, to your point, then meant that we could go in truly neutrally to all of these parties uh, and have a, a much more frank and interesting discussion about what they were doing because um, especially in the early days, they were talking as much to Riskbook as it was or Superseed now as they were to Jared and Ben, two guys who have got a, a plan, who want to go and change uh, things for the better and take pain out of people's lives. 
So why would you not want to have a chat with them and, and try and help them think about how they're going to solve this? I, I think it helped as well that we'd we'd built up through our our sort of most recent uh, roles in in various industry firms. So uh, Jared and myself, before Jared went to Tiger, were working together for a period at Aon Endpoint, where we were consulting for a huge number of insurers and reinsurers around the market. Uh, and afterwards, we were able effectively to go back to all of those uh, firms and say, you know, we did a lot of work for you. We'd, we'd love to continue the discussion almost and dive into some of the issues that we know, you know, you might not have wanted to share so explicitly with your your big broker partners um, because you want to appear strong and and perfect to everybody else in the market. But when you actually then can go behind the curtain as like a friendly helper who's is hopefully going to solve some things for you they're much more willing to actually talk about yeah actually you know it looks like a swan on the surface of the water but underneath the legs are going like crazy mm. um, can you take a look at the legs please <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's been helpful I, and I, I do really would love to come back and talk about how you found each other um, and, you know, the whole journey of finding each other as co-founder. That sounds very romantic, but, um, you know, you work together, but I know it's a, it's a very important dynamic. And, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to you, to both of you and also to your, your CTO as well. And it's interesting the dynamic you all have and it's very thoughtful people. And I'd love to just talk a little bit more about it in a moment. But before I go there, I'd just like to double click on the funding element because, I think for many people, they'll be interested in that because where, where are you in the funding process and how did you guard that? And was it, did it mean you had less options or what was that process like? So maybe there's many questions in one there. So unpick them as you wish. Yeah, I think very early on funding for any startup, that first, that first pass is, is really, really hard. Um, you know, I, unless you're, in in san francisco and you just walk around to coffee shops and talk to billionaires who are handing out angel checks i think for most for most founders that first pass is really hard it was especially challenging for us because as ben mentioned we were very very committed to not taking venture capital from these sort of like corporate venture firms that the insurance industry had set up Mm. um and that was difficult because those are the firms that fundamentally understood what we were doing Right. So, so now we're trying to educate these non-industry investors, what reinsurance is, why it matters, why there's a huge opportunity to do something of import here and, and not having the ability to sort of take the easy money from the big institutional industry investors. Um, But we had a number of, of early angels who backed us and they're like, this is, you're trying to take on, as you mentioned, the, the really big, hard problem. And this is super exciting. We want to back that. And then we, we got some amazing support from Seed Camp and MMC Ventures, uh, who then sort of followed our journey from that, from that early stage. MMC, not affiliated with Marsha McLennan, I think, just again to, to reiterate the independence angle we have. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and as we grow, grew, and as the product evolved, and as we were getting traction and, and client engagement and all these things as the business began to develop, it's made the funding, additional funding process a little bit easier because now you're, you're able to convey what you're actually doing as a business and why it's important and, and, and showing that the clients really want that. So it's getting, it's getting easier. Um, we're raising our next round this summer, so we've got a lot of exciting momentum there, but it's, it's all part of this sort of mm. journey of, of going through that. But there's definitely bumps early in the journey. 
Well, this is an interesting point for me because I, I, I would like to go meta with incentives here because you both come from the industry. You've been in innovation units, you've been in insurers where when you're trying to get stuff done inside a big organization, you have an incentive that you may get fired um, to actually get the stuff done, but you have so much inertia and, you know, this huge pressure from, you know, existing uh, business units who want to maintain the status quo. But you guys now have gone out, you've quit your day jobs, you've got some money together, now you've raised some funds, and that must be putting a whole level, different level of pressure on you. This is another level of incentive for you to get this right. So I'd just like to talk about this. You know, has it been the bed of roses you were expecting? Has it been you know, a, a bush of thorns that you were expecting? What has been the process like of creating something as founders? And have you experienced a different level of incentive to make this work? Yeah, it's, it's incomparable, I would, I would say, in, on so many levels to, to a corporate uh, lifestyle where you can, on one hand, sort of, at the lower end, I guess, you can coast along a lot more easily in the corporate world. And at the upper end, you can hit the ceiling really soon in the corporate world as well, because the ambition you have or the, the visions you have for what your firm could do or what the industry could do aren't gonna you know line up with the high level corporate goals of that particular employer or are a bit too much effort for the fifth layer of approvals that it has to go through or the person in legal and compliance is too busy with something else and so on so you very quickly find yourself hitting walls in that corporate environment uh, but equally you have this big you know safety net underneath you uh, so you're almost in this sort of narrow tunnel of safety i guess um, when you go into the startup world, the the ceiling disappears, which is amazing, but the bottom drops out as well, and <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the floor is no longer the limit in, in some ways too. So you end up with this huge freedom to succeed, but also this huge freedom to fail. I mm. I think they, I think it was one of the various people have probably said it that that this idea that you're constantly tightrope walking between immense success and total failure uh, and it very much feels like that as you go along um, but certainly I think the freedom that, that you have then to really focus on what you're trying to achieve and to push away anything else any of the usual you know day job stuff or uh, bureaucracy that might come from being part of a large organization that you know rightly has bureaucracy because it has so many other things that it has to worry about mm. you get this ability to just focus on the mission critical and really run at the goal that you're trying to achieve. Um, and that focus also comes with the pressure as well, because you know you only have one goal, you, it's, it's quite hard to escape from it. You, know, you can't create some other mysterious metric for yourself about how you're doing. It's very clear whether you're achieving your goal or not. And you do have um, a lot of pressure from, especially as the brand grows and more people learn about what we're doing, we do have a lot of pressure to deliver on our goals. But I think um, one of the most acute Feelings of pressure definitely comes from the fact that we uh, have other people's money to spend on building this vision. And it's, it's very easy, I think, for some people to sometimes comment, you know, on like, oh, startups, they just go out and spend other people's money. Certainly, I think there are cases where that 
can be true if you look at some crazy funding rounds that happen and, and they spend them all on pinball machines and, and things for their offices um but when you're as in our case taking early angel investment from your friends and from your colleagues and from your mentors around the industry and they're giving and in many cases in our case when we first set out these weren't you know people with tons of money to burn they were people who you know made a special enablement out of their own savings to support us uh, that brings with us huge pressure when you when you look at every expenditure you can make and you have to really think about is this the best use of the money that we've been entrusted uh, by x person who really trusts us and who we you know really trust as well and then you go through a funding round and then suddenly everything scales up again you realize wait a minute you know our last funding round was two million pounds i and now we're employing i i think starting monday we'll be employing 18 people i as a company and that brings a pressure not only in terms of delivering the results and making sure we do what's required to ensure that we can continue to pay those 18 people but we're enabling people's lives so each of the people who who work as part of the super cd ecosystem um many of them have been able to move homes or start sort of new chapters of their own lives with the security that a job at SuperSeed has given them so that's something as well that you really can't take lightly um but at the same Some time great great human incentives there isn't there sort yeah, of wonderful. So, so many people depending on you right uh, mm. in many ways which, which i think means that you, you you end up in a sort of a roller coaster mode that you learn to ride quite well which is like you your your downs on the roller coaster are much lower than in the corporate world but the the highs are, are so much greater uh, as well so it's sort of this constant you know celebration and and panic and and everything in between that you you get a thick skin to quite quickly mm. i would say i think you know from the early days panicking about whether a remaining you know 25k check was going to come into the angel round versus nowadays thinking about much bigger things um yeah you, you you get used to the roller coaster after a while and i think you, you learn to to ride it and to to make sure that you're steering <laughs> well as well yeah thanks for sharing that and i i do love to ask this question in some ways and it was uh and David Soloff, who is a three-time founder who was on my show previously and said that in startups is the only stream like you. You feel like you're on top of the world in the morning and you want to shoot yourself in the face in the afternoon. Um, so I, I, I can, you know, I, I kind of have a feeling myself. I, I know experiencing it when it's your own money and you're employing people, it does bring just another level of intensity to the whole mission um, and not necessarily a bad thing. So uh, we all need incentives as we've probably already absolutely agreed upon. I would just like to sort of, sort of talk about something else though, for a quick moment between the two of you. So, you know, we talked about, I came back to earlier about the relationship between the two of you and the incentives to make all this work. And how do you two like make it work. And there's Jezen as well. I'm going to talk to Jezen, who's your CTO on another show, because I really want to talk to him about some of the other like, setups you have in the firm um, with like, distributed working, the technology platform, how you get that done. But you know, for now, I, I would like to talk to the two of you. Like, how do you deal with disagreements? How do you deal with um, cooperation, feedback, success, failure? Talk me through the co-founder dynamic. Yeah, I think it um, it's a real testament to 
where the journey began. And, and I think it's reflective of, of us, the, the process by which we started this. So it, the earliest ideas sort of originated from some, some project work, like on a, a side thing that Ben had done at Lloyd's. And we started talking about what we thought the industry could do. And it, it all was very, for in a large, for a long time, theoretical. And it was us sort of bouncing ideas. I'm like, oh, this could do this. And, and you know, we, it, would, it would eventually do this. And we were, I think our default position was that there wasn't anything to do there. There wasn't a business, wasn't a company. It wasn't like day one, let's build a company together. It was the shared discovery and like thought experiment in a lot of ways of where we thought the industry would go and how it might work and what it might look like. And then the more we kept digging into it and the more we kept, we started doing this process where it was, but let's look at all the ways that this doesn't work at all. And, and almost like, let's find ways to just keep our, keep our really secure corporate trajectory jobs and, and stay with this. And slowly as we kept finding and, you know, talking about the various things and thinking through reasons that it shouldn't work, but found other reasons that if we approached differently, it could or would. And eventually became, came to the point where we felt obligated to do it. It was like someone is like, we felt we had a good shot at it. We looked at all the reasons we thought historically that it hadn't worked, the ecosystem hadn't come together and why. And and we both shared the belief that it would happen during our career. And we felt that the ways we had thought through it made a lot of sense. And we felt compelled to do it. But I think part of that foundational journey, which was over a year and a half, two years of sort of from the earliest conversations to us sort of going out and starting, you know, quitting our jobs and doing this, um, was as we built our relationship, both as as friends, but also as people who you know shared interesting ideas, and we built a huge amount of of trust and confidence in the way they thought about problems. And and even now, as as we have you know things that will come up where our deep our default position might be quite polar um, opposites from each other, we both had this inherent sense of. But I really need to understand what the other person's perspective is and why they came to that conclusion because there's not this dismissing of that it's sort of this we've always gone through this idea bouncing off each other sort of model Mm. and the end result has always been a better more crystallized version of an idea and you know we continue to do that all the time now there's loads of stuff that we do where it's like you know here's early idea one and we then iterate on it together and and work through it And, and i think with that there's very little, and this is one of our core sort of um, themes and, and culture traits that we that we look for, but a huge amount of humility. Like there isn't a sense of that was my idea and therefore we should prioritize that. Like there's always this, what is the best idea? And and regardless of where that comes from, there's this like ruthless willingness to get to the better version of that idea. And there's not a like, and I think at the end, it's, it's very common that we don't know what the original idea was or who, you know, you know, seeded it. It's like we, something came up, we began to discuss it, it evolved and evolved and and matured. And then at a certain point, we had this amazing thing that we want to go do. And, and the, the journey of like forming that there's no sense of like, well, that was, I thought of this first, or that was my additional contribution. There's just this sense of reaching towards that greater position and 
So, you know, as we go through and, and we disagree on different things or have different positions on how we think through it, you know, we've built over the last several years, I think a, a fabulous mechanism by which we very organically collaborate and work towards what we want to get to as a business. And I think it's proven itself very sort of fruitful as we've grown. Well, I'm, I love to hear those types of words be used in the structure of teams. And this podcast is called Talent Equals. I spent my 20 years recruiting people and building teams. And so I kind of like this. So I'm going to get into my wheelhouse here for a moment. But, and, and I, this is where I'd like to talk to you. You use the word trust, confidence, humility. You know, I ask the question about what it's like to, to solve problems, you know, meeting each other, figuring out. So I, I wonder, have you come to learn, like, are there any specific values that you really look for now? when you're hiring people? Yeah, absolutely. We have some uh, crystallized values. Uh, it was really funny. And I, I think I'll touch on a couple of things uh, once here. Um, I just wanted to briefly add to Jared's previous story that listeners mm -hmm. need to imagine most of those conversations Jared was describing uh, as being outdoors whilst Jared trained me for my first marathon. And his tenth, <laughs> I, <laughs> which I think is an important thing to overlay. So he took you out and got you knackered and then be, yeah. beat you down, right? Okay, I like that, Jared. That's a brilliant strategy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and again, I think these, these things are really important, right? Because you, you can otherwise imagine these conversations happening in all sorts of different contexts. Um, and some other contexts I just want to overlay in, into this conversation are, the fact that uh, Jared in particular is like a voracious, like a huge reader um, of startup and more general culture and uh, all sorts of narratives uh, that are, are very forward thinking and thoughtful about how you manage uh, a company and how you think about building businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised if I ever find a book that Jared hasn't read in the startup space. So from really early in our journey i think even when we had you know like there were four of us i think we already had a culture deck and we already had the values <laughs> that supersede wanted to yes have as a i love that i, I love hearing there were that four of us, right? which was which was mad it was a bit like well okay we'll make sure we don't start a fight uh, between the four of us but really from the earliest days i think we we built these values before you go on to that, because no, that's great, Jared, I'm glad to know that you, you were involved in that, Ben, because I, I think this is something that's undervalued, that so many people go along to their funding rounds talking about their mission and what they're going to do, but don't often talk about the culture that they're going to build, because let's face it, like maybe 80% um, of that money that, that they give you is going to go on wages. I mean, it's going to be on to the developers, onto the salespeople, to your wages, right? So why wouldn't we be focusing on the human machine that you're creating? Because everything starts and finishes with people in this business, right? We create the technology, they create the technology, they execute the teams. It's, it's all about the team and the people. So did you pitch the culture early on? Was that something you were talking to investors about? Early on with investors, we talked about why we were building a remote culture, um, which was allowing us to have access to a, a huge array of talent from around the world. As we built, even, even in the earliest days, we knew this was a global business from launch. It wasn't going to be local and then slowly expand. We knew that it had to be support global business from, from the word go. And building a global team and a distributed team was an element of that. So we talked a lot about 
accessing the best talent from around the world, regardless of geography. And, you know, we found some, um, uh, our first engineer was in Singapore when we, when we brought him on and he moved back home to, to St. Petersburg. Uh, shortly thereafter, we found um, some amazing people who were in Canada who've since moved back to Italy, um, who you know. And, and we have this, this sense of, we want to find the best people for us regardless and there shouldn't be a within this you know square mile of london mm-hmm. or you know there's little mm-hmm. pockets in the u.s we think there's so much talent that we can we can access um we we had we had an idea of what we wanted our culture to stand for um and it's i think it has to be something that companies come to so we put together the first version um around sort of our bigger sort of points that we, we wanted to what we meant what it meant to work for us and, and how we would pre- pre- approach culture as a business um but we did our first sort of team offsite um in belgrade in uh, 20 end of 2019 um and part of that week we spent the whole team to comes out for a week spent a week in person doing a number of you know team building activities and ask me anything sessions and planning and strategy and everything and we spent a, a good chunk of that week in culture sessions. And it wasn't us sort of saying, this is what we're doing, but we're talking about, you know, what does it mean to be here? What does a safe work environment mean for you? What does, what does culture mean to us and you as individuals and us as a team collectively? And, you know, one of the challenges that we have with a truly global team is culture is harder to get right. It's very easy when everyone's from Silicon Valley and you have like the hyper liberal ethos that sort of fits in this world. And, you know, it's but when you when you have a truly global team with different language barriers, different approaches to how they communicate disagreements and how they give feedback and, you know, their sensitivities around various things, building a really, really good thriving culture in that environment requires more effort, and more energy. And I think we've benefited from having some commitment to culture early on because it's much more complex than it is when you have a relatively homogenous group of colleagues, you know, who sit in a little bubble where culture is, Oh, here's our, you know, the percentage of individuals who fit in diversity camp X or Y and, and therefore culture, right. It's, it's much, much more nuanced and complex than that. And, it's something we, we talk about constantly. We evaluate our performance. We get feedback from the team on how we're doing there. And it's something that's um, really important for us to continue to, to spend time and invest in. It is hard. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think, I think people under, maybe I think that's why people don't do it much or they don't spend enough time on it. You know, embedding cultural, maybe I'll go to values, the idea of values. You know, you said, you know, I, I know this, you've got a, international team and people are distributed and, and um, Superseed is distributed and maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but you talked about cr- trust and humility. And I, I actually think those are two very, very important words for a community. Um, trust being the foundation of community is why I also look for integrity in people. I don't care where you are in the world, you know, where you are on a personality spectrum, uh, whatever it is, you need to have trust in your colleagues. You need to have trust in the people around you. And once you can create that, that, that environment, then everything else can be built from that. And, you know, humility, I love that because the humility for me is that, that idea of, you know, recognizing that there is a bigger mission than yourself and for teams to succeed, you know, humility and, and being able to give up 
your position for the good, greater good is another key indicator for me of the potential of an organization and a team to go on and do great things. And that's why I such humility as well. So those two things, I'm, I'm very glad you focused on those. And um, I feel like maybe we could talk a lot about that, but I'm sure that must be something you focus on a lot and creating that and engendering that. But in a distributed way, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah, we, we have to give so much credit here to Jason, who I know you're going to speak with separately for challenging our, I, as, as we often joke, almost office space, I, the film derived kind of I, work experiences to date. So, so Jared and I were coming obviously from a very corporate background where a lot of the lip service that's paid to these things um, is, is almost taken for granted and that's as, as far as you extend it. But I, the experience of working in a remote team wasn't something that Jared and I had had before. The experience of you know building trusting relationships with people that you had never met in person wasn't something that we had had before. Hmm. And I appreciate something that we've all had to do now, given you know yeah. how the last year has has panned out. But you know we're we're at, a, we're at a point now where because we haven't been able to do our offsites in person, I think now the majority of the team we probably haven't met in person, uh, which is astonishing uh, when you think about it. But at the same time, the people in the team, I, I think among them are some of like my closest collaborators and friends in, in many ways, even though we didn't spend time physically together. Um, and culture comes from almost a more deliberate set of interactions than casual water cooler conversation. Uh, mm. You know, it's not sort of like the drinks after work sort of thing. You have to make more effort and you have to think about how you talk to people and think about how you write to people, knowing that there are going to be various interpretations of the things you say. I, the effort is very easy to see in terms of how you position things and how you challenge your colleagues to think about things differently and how you listen to feedback and give feedback. Um, we, we've, we've certainly worked hard on on trying to bring in the best practices there we we listen very carefully i uh, to people far wiser than us so uh, our various investors have been incredible uh, especially uh, the institutions so seed camp and mmc and and episode one in connecting us with specialist people uh, advisors and culture advisors who you know, have seen it all go wrong in startups and have seen it go right in startups and can be a sounding board for us when we say, we're noticing things drifting a little bit to the right here. How do we drift them back in? Or is that okay? And and, and just getting as much uh, input that we can listen to and take on board uh, as, as we go through very rapid growth with, you know, very different people from all over the world. That's wonderful. And um- I had my previous guest, Sheila Heen, talk about feedback, and she's a, a wonderful practitioner in the idea of feedback. And I think it's one of those just skills, life skills. I mean, not only for the good of your organization, but the good of your relationships with friends and, and loved ones and everything. Feedback and is at that, that heart of it, really. Um, I'm, and, I'm, and we talked about Jez, and he's your um, drummer, CTO, um, a, a very lovely guy. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting him on the show. And I think I'm going to be really deep diving into a bit more with him about your distributed setup. And you know, for listeners who are going to be interested in that, they can stay tuned for that that episode where I'm going to talk with Jason about the whole idea of having a very distributed setup and his his experience. And you guys have really lived that, truthfully, what you're talking about and being open to other types of 
people as well, because I think he comes from a non-traditional background um, through into technology. And I thought he was a fascinating character. So yeah, stay tuned for that one. Um, mindful of time, I suppose I'd just like to sort of just forward just and finish up talking a little bit about um, well-being and resilience and then some of your influences as well, because we are in a weird time. Um, we're in a time where people aren't seeing a lot of each other, um, a lot of stress, a lot of challenge. So I just sort of wonder how you go about managing the well-being of your team and yourselves. And is this something you guys think about at all? I hope it is. And so maybe you could share a bit about that. Yeah. Um, we've begun to do more and more of this. I think at a very early stage startup, the, the amount of commitment people inherently give is amazing. But at the same time, there's always risk of people burning themselves out. And, and it's something we're paying a lot of attention to now is as we grow and we're getting more and more client engagement and we're rushing to build new features, we, we are recognizing the, the amount of, of effort by our team. And we're, we're recognizing as well the impact of COVID more broadly around how disrupting that's been for people's lives. You know, even though we're a remote team, everyone's kind of had it where it's not log off and, and go see your family and see your friends and go out for dinners and, and enjoy life. There's an element of, of loneliness in a lot of ways that people have sort of had to be been dealing with. Certain people have lost family members and there's, there's a lot of nuance and difficulty. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to the ability for us as a firm to be to some extent, a support group for each other. I, in a way where at the moment during, you know, what's been happening all over the world at different paces and in different waves in different countries, I'm in a way where our families and our friends haven't been able to be there whilst, whilst also I'm ensuring, you know, as, as, as Jared had mentioned, that we don't have people burning out from mm. working too hard with that natural, huge enthusiasm that comes from working on something incredibly exciting. I think it is quite easy for people to, uh, throw themselves into work and, and do nothing but work. So we, we manage that very carefully. Um, one of the, the interesting things I, that I think we're, we're trying to do more of at the moment is, is to make sure that we enable people as much as possible to do their best work and to do it on schedules that suit them and to adapt to what they have going on. So we have a lot of um, flexible working within the team. So we, we are an asynchronous team by nature as part of this distributed culture. So if you have unusual arrangements with family or you need to, as, as a few colleagues have, need to randomly fly to a different country to be with loved ones and, and need to work from there or are going to be away for a few days, we've been exceptionally uh, open and trusting, I think, there towards what the team does. Uh, and how the team manages their own requirements. And I think we've been able to build a huge amount of trust that people are following our values there. Uh, so we, we have one of our key values is uh, being what we call managers of one or, or self-governance effectively, people being able to take their own responsibility for delivering the goals they need to and communicating how they're delivering them mm. back to the rest of the team. Um, and also that means communicating to us when they're going to struggle to meet their goals and be feeling, you know, that level of trust and the ability to be a bit vulnerable and say, actually, you know what, I need to take five days off because things at home aren't great for me. I, and, and creating enough trust and a, a, a 
acknowledge that the the broader goal of us working together isn't you know to make sure that you've clocked in all of the hours you said you would from nine till five but rather that you know we're all on this shared mission together if you've got to take a rest or you've got to do something different for a bit that's that's okay because we trust that you're doing this so that you can come back stronger uh, in five days time and i think in big corporate machines that's something that's missing a lot of the time mm. i it's not as easy you know there's this automatic distrust there's this i think i think maybe managers have, have been burned by people who've abused that trust in the past in, in bigger firms people who just want to play the game a bit i but i think so far in our culture i we've been small enough we've been engaged enough we've been excited enough to trust each other and to go on this journey together in a way where we can really depend on people and I, I was reading, interestingly, this uh, listening on, on, on Audible as it was the uh, to this book called The Art of Fairness uh, by David Bodinus, where he's talking a lot about how do you give uh, to people whilst also auditing um, in the sense that, you know, how do we give as many freedoms as we can to people so that they can really run with those responsibilities and those opportunities but also make sure that we're doing it fairly and making sure that you don't have room for people to take advantage of these things whilst also you can commit to truly giving them freedoms. I think what, what classically we've seen is startups have ended up in the longer term disengaging employees uh, because they've thrown too much at them or they've, they've said, yeah, do whatever you want, work whenever you want, have as many holidays as you want. And it has all sorts of undesired consequences uh, along the way around how different people see their role uh, so I think people do need some constraints and some ability to mm. check themselves against what's going on with the business. So, so a big part of what we try to do as founders is to manage that self-governance possibility and to give people as much freedom as they can possibly desire, whilst also giving them enough in the way of constraints and in the way of check-ins and checkpoints and visibilities so that they can feel like they're embracing it. Uh, in a, in a way that they deserve to. You know, we don't want people to be shy about the fact that if they want to go shopping in the middle of the day because it's better than waiting till the weekend, but that's okay. And so we try to be vis visible as founders as well about how we're using it. So we'll post into the team chat. I'm going to be away for two hours now uh, because I need to go and sort something with family or I'm going to go for my lunchtime run now. Uh, see you in an hour. And, and just making it very visible that this is okay. This kind of stuff is okay. I'm encouraging people to make what they're doing visible as well so that there's almost that automatic audit so that people don't, you know, I feel like they have to sneak away from work if they're not going to work. Rather, they, they can embrace it a bit and, and tell us and be open and, and share how they're, how they're using the fact that we've got a very trusting and, and open culture. Yeah. I mean, I hear there's so many, so much meta here about the ecosystem and incentives. You're creating your own ecosystem to be able to create an ecosystem and you have to have the right incentives within your work environment that people feel so committed to that, that, that culture and so committed to the survival of that because it works for them so well that then that's their incentive to make sure the community stays alive. And I think this is something that people misunderstand, I think, about teams. I mean, maybe big corporates, I'm going to generalize here, their incentive is the big salary maybe in the pension and they're going to grind you to, to, to stay for that and you get the pension and everything else and the mortgage. But if you're a startup and you've got to compete with those firms where you can't compete on money, maybe you have to just start competing on a trustful environment 
where the lifestyle is so much better for them. And that is so important that that becomes in and of itself the incentives for them to keep the ecosystem alive. And, and I think trust is at the heart of that. I mean, great teams will tell you that, great sports teams will tell you that, that you create the wonderful environment for those, those real superstars to be in and they won't want to leave. Um, so I think on this one a lot, I can hear it in maybe what you're talking about there. And, and um, I think we will explore more about distributed working because I'm a big fan of this myself. It's something I've adopted fully now here at Exige as well. And, but yet still to this day, I still encounter the same problem that people, I've been, I've been distributed pretty much my entire career. I live in Devon, Devon in England. I work all over the world and I've had to been fighting this for so long that you don't need to be right there on the seat with them you know, to, to make a success of this, it's absolutely possible. But I, so we've talked about sort of the, the culture that you've got going on and helping people manage their well-being. there. Maybe Jared, you could tell us a bit about personal well-being for you. I mean, you talk about running, is that, is exercise part of that for you? It's- yeah, it, it absolutely is. I think there's always a time when, when we need to sort of find time to think and, and recharge and, I think it's especially hard for founders because as we've talked about a bit earlier, it's like you live and breathe what you're doing. Like your entire sort of mission now is aligned with, with what this company is doing and what we're trying to accomplish. And it's very easy for us to sort of overreach and overextend and, and do too much there. So finding time to, to have a step back, to go for runs, to, to clear your mind. Um, and and even then, you know, Ben mentioned us holding, you know, trying to be a good example for the team. You know, we've been quite good holding each other accountable to make sure we take time off as, mm. as things, you know, ramp up when you have different periods, like making sure that, you know, when is the next time we're going to take a few days off? Are you going to sort of properly, you know, detox from work a little bit? And, and when, we're, when we're away, you know, Ben always yells at me, like making sure I'm not on Slack and things because it's so easy to get a ping and be like, oh, I should chime in here. It's like, no, but if, if I'm on, like, again, trusting the team is doing what's best, right? I have 100% confidence that if, if I let this conversation go between a number of colleagues, that they'll come to a conclusion that is as good for the team as anything I would have also been involved with and giving them a bit of freedom and autonomy there. But um, I, think, I think it's really important to, to make sure you step away from, from it for a while. And we talked about, I'm working on this, this idea, this narrative of um, running a startup is like running a marathon, but not in the go slow, fast for slow analogy that people always use, but in this idea of it's hugely emotional as a roller coaster. It's physically exhausting over time. And, and you don't quite know, and there's a huge amount of time where you, you're in the sort of world of unknown. And if you're not calibrating for that and listening to advisors and mentors and making sure you're, you know, taking some time off and re- recharging throughout that process, um, you're, you're going to crash and it's going to like, you're going to, you're going to hit this, this wall and it's, you're, you're not going to be able to get to the ultimate end goal there. And if we think about, there's all this talk around, like, so I think startups have a really bad um, culture by reputation sometimes like this constant hustling kind of thing, which it it takes in a very short term perspective for that, right? It's grinding, you know, 18 hours a day. It works for 
a few months, maybe a year you could do it. But if you're looking at this journey, which we are over mm. eight, 10, 15 year time horizon, this is going to become unsustainable. And the, the more you burn yourself out early, the harder it will be to maintain enthusiasm and excitement and motivation as the business grows. And, and it's not just the, the burnout isn't just for us. It's what happens to the team and, the, and everything we're trying to do if we go way too, too hot early and burn ourselves out. So it's, we spend a lot of time thinking about setting a good example for the team, mm. but also making sure that we, we spend some time also decompressing and taking days off and, and doing these kind of things. So it's very, very important. I'm glad to hear that. Because I mean, I, I, in my own personal situation, my family life, I've entered in a, a very difficult stage with um, an injury for my wife. And it, it can seem very academic, these topics that we're talking about, this kindness and caring and compassion. And, um, but when it hits you, you know, when you need the colleagues around you to support you through difficult times, you know, you can't just make that happen instantly. It has to have been a, a foundational culture you've set in place. You know, uh, I would talk about it again, is the ecosystem of kindness. And it's so important for the long term. I, I can't emphasize that enough. If you want to have long-term relationships with people, then you've got to share values and you've got to have trust. And... Um, I think it was actually Ray Dalio talked that they recognized at Bridgewater, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds, that in, in terms of having long-term relationships with each other, they recognized it wasn't competencies or intelligence that individual as such. It was really the values that they had and whether they fit with the community. That's what was the greatest indicator for them, long-term relationships. Um, so great to hear you're focusing on those and you've put it so early in the business and the, the mission that you have. And I, I am, I've in, massively enjoyed our conversation. I know we're getting close to an hour and a half. So and I think we've probably, probably overshot the time that we had and we could keep going on so many topics. So I, I would like to end up the conversation though with one that I always do in, about asking about books that have influenced you or, or if you don't want to talk about books, you know, thinkers. But yeah, do you have some books that, that really have helped you and that you think might help listeners understand you or, or have helped you in your journey? Please do share. Ben mentioned before, I, I try to read as, as much as I can on this. I, I think for me, I love, I, I, I can't point to a single, like this book profoundly changed my thinking on X and, and we went forward with that. There's loads of things from um, around how do you, how do you get a, a, a diverse and broad array of perspectives and looking through things you mentioned Ray Dalio and probably principles is, mm -hmm. is there's a ton of things that are amazing in that book, but some things that maybe fit his culture and their business that might not fit ours, but you're constantly trying to learn from the experiences and things of others and calibrating accordingly. So I, th I think that's a fabulous one. I love um, Ben Horowitz's books. The hard thing about hard things, I think is a, f a, a must read for all founders because it goes into, you know, you read about, you know, this journey of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Kevin Systrom and the Instagram team and how they made billions of this iconic company and, and no issues whatsoever besides, you know, data privacy things that blew up later on. Um, but, <laughs> but there's this, this truth behind how Ben Horowitz writes that book that goes into the journey of, you know, he had a, a thing where, you know, his wife was, you know, 
very seriously hurt and and they were on they were doing their their ipo roadshow and like this sort of these are situations like there is no right answer like you can't you have 600 people who might lose their job if this company goes under because you can't get public but at the same time the person you're most dedicated to in your life is also in a in a dangerous situation he's but he's he's talking about this very emotionally and it, it really resonates because there isn't a a right or a wrong in a lot of these issues. So that I thought that's a, a fabulous book. And then I love reading about people's journeys and how they've built culture and how they've built businesses and how they've thought through problems. Um, I thought um, Bob Iger's book from from Disney, Ride of a Lifetime, was fabulous. Um, the the Pixar team, I think, writes uh, Ed Catmull, and, and that those guys have, have written some fabulous things. So the list goes on and on. I try to I try to curate it down to a. <laughs> A, f- a few key ones that I do each year. So look you out for that. You said Ride of a Lifetime. Was that, you said it was the Disney. Disney yeah, Bob, Bob Iger's um, book memoir that just came out from his time as okay. the Disney CEO. And again, there was a really fascinating story there where they're in, he's in China for the launch of Disney World Shanghai, I think it is. Um, and when he's there, like preparing for this massive parade and this excitement um, is the same day that that little boy got taken by an uh, an alligator in the park and and died in Florida, and this sort of like dichotomy of these of these emotions where he has to be this like excitable figurehead talking about the amazing launch of this new park and the expansion into this part of the world, while simultaneously going back to the hotel to call this family who at his park just lost their child and and it's these sort of things you're like this is kind of the emotional journey that you go on in in these roles where. It's not just like all these rich people doing awesome stuff. It's like these are people's lives being impacted. And it's this bigger thing that's all connected. And, and I just, I find the journey fascinating. I love reading about mm. people who write about it authentically because it's, it's not, you know, it's not all the up and to the right that, that maybe the, the pitch decks always show for every startup in the world, but the, the underlying elements of that. And then using components of all of those things to further refine and frame the way the way i think about things and the way we start to form what the business wants to do and those little pieces along the way are always always helpful thank you jared that's really lovely thank you ben yeah i guess on my side it's interesting i I maybe rely on jared a little bit to have the more focused case studies covered (laughs) Um, and my reading almost goes sort of all over the place in ways that seem totally unrelated to work, um, which I actually find is, is really helpful, strangely enough. So almost to try and trigger different parts of my imagination and my brain, I'll, I'll read everything on sort of a fiction side of things. I'll read, you know, classic literature to sort of trashy fiction and, and popular stuff that's going through. And I think most recently a bunch of Soviet era sci-fi that I found very entertaining. Um, and, at the other end, give us a name, Ben. What sci- Soviet era sci-fi? Surely, what have you got? Yeah, there's. there's um, I'm I'm a huge sci-fi fan, by the way. So this is this is manner from do, heaven. Do you me. know uh, things like Monday starts on Saturday, or, or I there's there's a bunch by the brothers. I'm going to get the surname wrong now, which is going to be embarrassing on air. Uh, there's there's a couple of brothers. The, the surname begin with a K. Let me quickly cheekily Google it on air. This this is the joy. This is it. This is the joy of Google. Yeah. You got to get that out. Absolutely. Because if I say it wrong, I think <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's the Strugatsky brothers. There we are. 
I was I was definitely going the Strugatsky brothers. That is a difficult yeah, one. So okay. the Strugatsky brothers do a bunch of books. I where they're just playing with all sorts of different social systems and ideas. It's sort of in the era of um, you know various oppressive regimes in in Russia, where they're sort of doing thought experiments on you know okay, what would it look like if we took that to the extreme? What uh, what would it look like if we took it the other way? I, and they just sort of play out and fail. Like it's almost like scenario testing of every type of culture and political system you can imagine. They they bring in, you know, what if we were looking at the earth as a giant alien experiment where the aliens are trying to crack, you know, what political or social systems achieve justice or success or advancement most effectively. I see so you get some incredible uh, thought experiments being played out in some of those fictional examples. But equally, I, I love reading uh, nonfiction in totally unrelated fields. I, whether I, I read some motoring history recently, so I found that quite an interesting lens. Uh, chess mm. manuals and I, my, my own sort of academic background is actually in sort of classical music and, and music theory and analysis. So I occasionally found reading very in-depth books on sonata theory. I, which is not of interest to any of your listeners, I suspect. Maybe one. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Anybody is listening to this. <laughs> I've been reading about <laughs> expositions and development sections of sonatas, and, and yes, I would love to connect. But um, well, but it's I, fascinating. I, I think actually a wide range of reading is is a key to a to a healthy life. And I think again to to quote someone I'm very fond of, who's Charlie Munger, and says by the the most interesting people he ever meets in his life have all been readers. I've terribly quoted him again, but that's a, effectively the quote. And I I found the same. Um, my favorite my my tome in the sci-fi area is actually June, and I every time I pick that book up, I learn something more about um, you know society and ecology and ecosystems and and just the way way that people think and live. And it's just a fantastic incredibly rich book which is also very fun to to experience as well so yeah and then and then a variety of others so i think you've given us a really lovely spectrum of books there and i i'm very thankful for you for sharing those um well gentlemen i have very much enjoyed the conversation um i'd like to thank you for all the time you've given us today um if I just like if if someone out there is listening who could help you guys, um, who would you'd like to have in touch? You know, could you just share briefly, like how you know what maybe who you would like to get in contact with you? You know, if you've got any particular people out there in in, in the audience you might want to reach out to you, how they could do that as well, and then we can wrap the show up. I think to Jared's point uh, around us listening to to pain points. Uh, if if you're experiencing a pain point that is loosely to do with the reinsurance ecosystem i we'd love to hear from you and hear about it i rather than the other way around it even better if it's something that it seems like we're not solving yet so i if anything in your life sucks and you work in reinsurance or, or loosely close to reinsurance we'd love to hear from you <laughs> that's a big one there we go <laughs> watch out guys <laughs> indeed um, and I was just I was just going to add, I think uh, we love talking about these things. And, and for us, you know, especially this conversation on culture that we've been having is a constant pursuit of better. 
um, mm. you know, and, and if there's people who want to call in and learn about how we approach something, if you have other founders who want to sort of bounce ideas off us or see how we tackled certain things, we, you know, I love having conversations with other people on the journey. And so more than happy to, to have those conversations as well. So if you, if you work in the industry and something that we're doing as of interest and you want to get involved by all means, but if you're also on your own founder's journey and want to chat for a bit about how we've taken the approach and, and things, you know, more than happy to bounce ideas off and, and have those conversations. Cause um, I learn as much from those as, as I hopefully pass along things that I've learned along the way. Um, I've, and I think we both have, have benefited so much from mentorship from people further on their journey than us, you know, and I, I, I love talking to people who are doing other things because there's, there's always shared experiences and, and things that you know, what we might encounter in the future, or we've already, already encountered, we can pass on how we've, we manage that and what we would have done differently, et cetera. So more than happy to have any of those conversations as well. It feels like a wonderful point to leave the show. And, and Bob, before we go, how should they find you? Do you have social media, various things like that? LinkedIn is probably easiest for me. Um, Jared, J-E-R-A-D. So for listeners who aren't familiar with my crazy American spelling of that name, um, but I, we, can, we can probably put a link in the show notes. Or yeah, absolutely. There. I'll put some links there for sure. Same for you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just going to let all the traffic go to Jared. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few uh, options to get involved on superseed.com as well. So if you're interested in joining our network, for example, become part of the biggest uh, reinsurance network out there, we'll, we'll come and find you as soon as you sign up anyway. So I look forward to speaking that way or, as Jared said, find us on LinkedIn. Uh, and we'd love to chat. I, just like we have today for a wonderful chat with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, uh, Ben, Jared, I, I feel like we could have kept talking for much longer. Um, I hope we can continue this conversation and I'm going to be catching up with your, your fellow co-founder uh, Jezen uh, later, um, another episode. But for now, I'd like to wish you both and the whole Super C team lots of success in your journey. Thank you very much for your time and being here on Talent Equals. And... Um, until then. Until then. Perfect. Thanks, William. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.